I love that song. I don't know about you, but I think I just need like an earbud in and having that song just playing on repeat all day, every day. <laughs> that would help, wouldn't it? Um, I wanted to say a word about the little slips of paper that are in your seat first. Um, these are not for a prayer station, which is what we usually have them for. There is a prayer station over here um, that has red slips of paper asking, where do you see the Holy Spirit at work? And I would invite you to offer your response to that question and post them there at the prayer station as you feel led to do that. But these slips of paper are actually to write little notes to someone who's in the room, and that is Annika Smart, who's over here. Annika, tell us what you're doing starting on Saturday. So sort of a cultural immersion experience, four weeks in Peru, staying with a host family and learning about the culture and learning Spanish. So we're going to write little notes and prayers for Annika, who spells her name A-N-N-I-K-A. Um, and then in a, in a little bit, uh, during our prayer time, we're going to invite Annika up and just say a prayer with her. And this basket here is to receive your little notes that Bethany is going to pack away in her luggage. And then they'll be yours to, to pull out as you feel you need a little message from the Hope Gateway community while you're in Peru. Today I am filled with gratitude, and that is because yesterday Sarah and I and 14 other leaders from the Hope Gateway community spent a day together on our annual Hope Gateway Leadership Retreat. Some of you who are in the room were part of that retreat and we're grateful for each of you who, who participated. The point of our gathering was just to pause for a few minutes, well, for a few hours, uh, to reflect back on our year together and give thanks for all the ways that God has been at work, and to begin to look ahead at the next year, two years, five years, to be in prayer together as we begin the process of discerning God's vision for our church in the years to come. It was a great time of sharing, honest conversation, disagreeing respectfully, earnestly desiring to understand each other's perspectives better, dreaming about the future, and really leaning into the future together. Yesterday's leadership retreat was really just the beginning of a process that we're going to be inviting all of you to be a part of. Because during the months of June, July, and August, and maybe into September a little bit, we're going to be inviting every single person who's part of the Hope Gateway community to join in a small group of six to eight people, some meeting in people's homes, some meeting here, different days of the week, different times of day, to respond to a few questions, which are, what are the things that are most important to you about this community? What was it that brought you here? What keeps you engaged? And as you think about the future, what could you imagine for Hope Gateway in the next two or three or five years? That's where you're going to be hearing more about that in the coming weeks, and we're just really excited to see how God will work through this process to help us lean into the future more faithfully. So today we're continuing a worship series that we started last Sunday called Moses' Reluctant Prophet. We're looking way back to Exodus, which is the second book in the Hebrew Scriptures, way at the very beginning of the Bible, at this character Moses, who was a reluctant prophet called by God, and a hero to the Hebrew people. Last week, Sarah kicked off the series, and those of you here last week will remember the part of the story that she shared, which was... Right, the bulrushes. Although that word bulrushes never actually shows up anywhere in the Bible, or at least not in Exodus. But yes, the story of, and, and I missed this picture, here's our leadership retreat yesterday. Um, 
Moses in the basket at the riverbank, right? So Moses was born at a time when the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, was threatened by all the Hebrew people in his midst, and he issued a decree that what? Yeah, especially the boys, right? All the Hebrew boys should be killed. And not only did he issue that decree, but he gave permission for anyone to kill a Hebrew boy baby if they saw one. So Moses' mother, whose name was? Jochebed. Um, took Moses, actually created this basket, and took Moses to the riverbank and left him there. Uh, with Moses' older sister to keep watch. And there's this great story that unfolds from there where Moses' sister and the Pharaoh's daughter, two midwives named uh, Shipra and Pua and Moses' mother, Jochebed, conspire to commit was, what was essentially civil disobedience, right? They ignored the Pharaoh's decree and it resulted in Moses not only living, but in this great little twist, being raised by his own mother, as his midwife, or as his nurse mother, and then being, being adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter and, and growing up in the, the Pharaoh's family in like the royal palace. It's this great story of deceit and uh, mystery and conspiring and scheming together. That's the beginning of the story of Moses. Now today we're going to continue that story, but we're jumping ahead about 40 years. That's how the Bible works, you know, 40 years later. So when we left off last, Moses was a baby in a basket. Um, the Hebrew people had been uh, taken into slavery by the Pharaoh. And uh, what we read in, the, in Exodus chapter 2 is that one day after Moses had become an adult, we learn in another place in scripture that he was 40 years old, he went out among his people and he saw their forced labor. labor. He saw that they were slaves. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. And you know what he did? He killed him. Now that's a part of Moses' story we don't talk about very often. But in the second chapter of Exodus, Moses commits murder. Essentially, he breaks one of the Ten Commandments that he has not yet received from God. <laughs> they were retroactive. <laughs> they were retroactive. I think the commandment to not commit a mur murder actually existed before the Ten Commandments. But Moses did that. Now what we learn from that story is that Moses is a person who has deep compassion for the suffering of others. Right? He has this righteous anger about injustice when he sees it. Now he's filled with rage, and we could certainly critique the way that he you know, acts out on his rage. He commits murder. And not only does he commit murder, but then he buries the body in the sand and makes sure nobody's looking. Okay? Not long after, though, he sees another dispute and he tries to intervene and one of his own people, the Hebrew people, said, what are you going to do? Kill me like you did that Egyptian? <gasps> so he was busted. The word, everybody knew. So the word got back to Pharaoh that he killed this, this Egyptian. And what do you think Moses does? He takes off running. He takes off running and he goes to the land of Midian. And we don't know exactly where that was, but somewhere far, far away from Pharaoh, right? He's escaping the Pharaoh. And he goes to Midian. Um, and when he's there, he's at the well, which is kind of a gathering place. 
And he sees another act of injustice. There's a shepherd who is picking on these seven women at the, at the well. And Moses intervenes. He does not commit murder this time. <laughs> Moses intervenes on their behalf. So again, he sees an injustice and he feels compelled to respond. These seven women happened to be sisters and their father was a Midian priest whose name was Jethro. Jethro hears that this guy Moses, who's new to town, has helped out his daughter, so he invites him to dinner and to make a long story short, Moses ends up marrying one of those daughters. And her name is, anybody know? I had to look it up, I forgot. Zipporah. They settle in the region, they begin to have a family, and Moses starts his job, which is tending his father-in-law's sheep. Now what do you know about shepherds in the Bible? Think back to the story of Jesus' birth and how the shepherds were the ones who were invited to come and witness that birth. What do you know about shepherds? They, are they the elite? They're the lowest of the low. On the social ladder, right, they are at rock bottom, right? They are the lowest of the low. Think about Moses' story. He's born a Hebrew people in a time of persecution. He gets raised by the pharaoh in the royal palace. And now he's far, far away and he's acting as a shepherd. So this is sort of a rags to riches and back to rags story, isn't it? So the, all of that has taken place. And now we're several decades later because scripture says, and then many, many years later, and then we come upon chapter 3. Now some scholars say that by the time Moses has this encounter with a burning bush, he may have been as much as 80 years old. Moses is no spring chicken, right, when God is calling him on a mission. So I'm going to read now from uh, chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush. Now Moses was taking care of the flock for his father-in-law Jethro, Midian's priest. He fed his flock out to the edge of the desert, and he came to God's mountain called Horeb. The Lord's messenger appeared to him in a flame of fire in the middle of a bush. Moses saw that the bush was in flames, but it didn't burn up. Now let's just stop for a minute and imagine this is you. You're out, you know, tending your sheep, or maybe you're hiking, uh, and all of a sudden you encounter a bush that is on fire, but it's not burning up. How would you react? It might be a little unnerving, right? But what would you do if that bush starts talking and it calls your name? Because that's what happens next. Then Moses said to himself, let me check out this amazing site and find out why the bush isn't burning up. Now when the Lord saw that he was coming to look, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses! <laughs> Moses! Now you would be freaking out at this point, right? Wouldn't you be? I would be. It's a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up, and now it's calling your name. Moses said, I'm here. Now I wonder what the, you know, the Bible doesn't give us anything about tone of voice here, but is this like Moses saying, I'm here? <laughs> or is this Moses like confidently, I'm here! Like we don't know. I'm guessing more the former, but I don't know. Then the Lord said, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground. 
God continued, I am the God of your father, Abraham's God, Isaac's God, and Jacob's God. Now Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then God said, I have clearly seen my people oppressed in Egypt. I've heard their cry of injustice because of their slave masters. I know about their pain. I've come down to rescue them from the Egyptians in order to take them out of that land and bring them to a good and broad land, a land that's full of milk and honey, a place where the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites all live. We'll skip over that part. Now the Israelites' cries of injustice have reached me. I've seen just how much the Egyptians have oppressed them. So I'm going, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Okay, so just stop there for a second. Burning bush, bush starts talking, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground, and hey, Moses, I have a job for you. I'm going to send you back to Egypt to intervene with the Pharaoh on behalf of your people who are living in slavery because I've heard their cries, I know their suffering, I see that injustice, and you're the one I have picked to be the liberator of the people who are captive. You're Moses. How do you feel about this? I think you got the wrong number, God, right? I mean, would you be excited to take on this mission? No, you would not be excited. Moses has, has fled for his life. He's formed a life. He has a family. He's good with the sheep, you know. He, he has, he's 80 years old, maybe. He has no interest in taking on this mission, which seems dangerous and complicated and no thank you, God, right? So Moses says to God, Who am I to go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I'll be with you. And this will show you that I'm the one who sent you. After you bring back the people out of Egypt, you will come back here and worship God on this mountain. Now we're going to continue this story in the coming weeks because it gets really good after that. <laughs> God sends Moses back to Egypt. God sends all those plagues. Remember the frogs and the locusts and the boils and all that good stuff? To warn the Pharaoh, the slaves escaped, the Red Sea parts, Pharaoh's army got drowned, you know. This is a great story full of special effects. And we're going to continue on this story in the coming weeks. But there is a central theme right here in this part of the story, and I don't want you to miss it. There is a central theme, and that is one of oppression and injustice and liberation. God sees the suffering of God's people who are oppressed. God looks with love and compassion upon them. And God calls people like Moses, ordinary people, to be agents of liberation and freedom and justice. Do you see that theme? This is the central theme that our Jewish brothers and sisters uh, celebrate and remember every year when they celebrate the Seder meal at the time of Passover, right? They tell this story again and again about how they were slaves in Egypt and suffering and God sent Moses and the plagues and God led them out of captivity into freedom. It's the central story for our Jewish brothers and sisters and it is a central story for all of us who call ourselves people of faith. This theme begins to play out right here as God calls Moses in the burning bush. Now, time out for a second. 
Was that bush actually burning? I have no idea. And I don't even care. I mean, I just put this on the list of mysteries, of things that are difficult to understand or explain, along with the flames dancing above the people's heads on that Pentecost. Like, who knows? But the point is that God got Moses' attention on an ordinary day when he's doing what he did every day, tending sheep. God got his attention and called him. And God said, don't worry, like when I call you, I'm going to equip you. I'm going to make sure you have all the gifts and the strength and the wisdom that you need to be faithful. Which is exactly what God says to each one of us when God calls us. Don't worry, I know I'm asking you to do something crazy hard. And I know that you don't think you're capable of that or equipped for that, but I'm going to be with you. And if I call you, then I'm going to give you all the gifts that you need to be faithful in responding to that call. That's what God does. This theme is important because the record of Scripture is clear. God does not desire for anyone to live in oppression. Oppression is never the will of God. Do you hear me? Sadly, oppression is the way of human beings, right? Throughout history and still today in so many places, we human beings figure out ways to categorize ourselves. We'll say like, well, I'm like this, and you're like that, and that means we're different. And different is fine. But then we go one step further, and we say what? Because I'm like this, and you're like that, and we're different. I am better than you. I am superior to you. And I have a right, actually, to control you, to own you, to oppress you. We do this again and again and again. Usually based on some pretty arbitrary uh, characteristics. And basically, any characteristic will do. Whether that's age or... Uh, skin color or culture or tribe or nationality, country of origin, gender, age, sexual orientation, the list goes on and on. We find ways to categorize ourselves and then we say because we're different, well I am clearly superior to you. And the point is that all oppression is connected. Now somebody has taken all of these words that have to do with, with oppression, many different kinds of oppression, and they're hard to read, but they're all there, and created this circle to show that all oppression is related. The specifics may change, but the dynamics are exactly the same. And the surprising thing is that one group may experience the violence of oppression, and then once they've gained some strength and measure of liberation, what do they do? They oppress others. This happens again and again. And we don't have to look any further than Palestine and Israel to see that dynamic playing itself out. One group of oppressed people experiencing some liberation and strength, and they go on to oppress others. Now, one thing that is really true is that our nation, the United States of America, was built on a foundation of oppression. What was the first oppression? Native Americans. And that was nothing less than a genocide. A genocide of Native Americans. And we do not learn that in fourth grade history class. 
And then soon after that, it was slavery. One group of people saying, we have the right to own you and to force you to work. And it didn't end with the end of slavery because it continued on and continues to this day. Oppression of people of color. This is a truth that we are still confronting and trying to repair. And we have a lot more work to do. Now we're seeing so many examples of this in the media today. But really what we're seeing today is just the band-aid being ripped off this gaping wound that has, been, that has continued to exist forever. And we're just seeing it today in a new way. Right? That's what's happening. So maybe you've heard about the, the new National Memorial for Peace and Justice, which just opened a few weeks ago in Montgomery, Alabama. Anybody heard about this? Anybody been there yet? Um, this is a, a, a monument dedicated to victims of white supremacy. So at the center is this walkway, and that's the black uh, square in the center, uh, with 800 weathered steel columns hanging from a roof. And etched on each column is the name of an American county and the name of someone who was lynched there. Or some ones, right, exactly. Many of them are engraved unknown because the names of the people who were lynched are not even remembered. At first, the columns hang sort of low at eye level, but as you walk through this walkway, the floor actually descends so that eventually they're hanging above your head and you're forced to imagine being one of the spectators in those old photographs that we've all seen of people watching the public lynchings. I think this is a place we all need to visit because this is a part of our history that we have not adequately confronted. Now just a month ago, the world lost a great American theologian, author, seminary professor, best known for his uh, works around black theology and black liberation, Dr. James Cone. And in one of his books called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, He's making the connection between the cross, which is the primary symbol of the Christian faith, right? But what is it actually? It's a means of execution. Making a connection between the cross and the lynching tree. And here's one thing he says. In the lynching era, between 1880 to 1940, white Christians lynched nearly 5,000 black men and women in a manner with obvious echoes of the Roman crucifixion of Jesus. Yet these Christians did not see the irony or contradiction in their actions. That's appalling. White Christians lynching black Americans in public. People would bring their kids and have picnics to watch public lynchings. This is a part of who we are that we have to come to terms with. Oppression is never the will of God. He goes on to say later, the conspicuous absence of the lynching tree in American theological discourse and preaching is profoundly revealing, especially since the crucifixion was clearly a first century lynching. That's what it was, a public execution. The same means of dying, actually, suffocation.
Now, lynching may seem like a pretty extreme expression of oppression, but it's important to confront this truth. This is recent history. This is not ancient history. This is recent history. And the point is that especially when we feel threatened by people who are different, we human beings are willing to go to great lengths to claim our own superiority over others and then to use violence to oppress. This was the story of the Hebrew people in Egypt thousands of years ago and it is our story today. Now some of you come from countries where you have witnessed firsthand this dynamic where one group of people oppresses another group of people and I mean countries beyond the United States because we do this too but you've witnessed the violence of one group of people oppressing another group of people and systematically eliminating them. It happens within nations, it happens within cities and neighborhoods, and it happens within the church. And wherever it happens, this fact remains that God does not desire for anyone to be oppressed. Oppression is not the will of God. Liberation is the will of God. Now, I really believe that part of Hope Gateway's task in the world is to confront systems of oppression, to follow in the line of Moses, to see our own burning bush before us and God calling our names, to answer the vows of our baptism, to resist evil, injustice, and oppression in whatever forms they present themselves. Those are words from our baptism liturgy. And those systems of evil, injustice, and oppression do present themselves again and again. Now, we can't do this all on our own, but we can do something. And one of the things we can do is we can model what it looks like to be a diverse community where all the lines of division and oppression melt away and we truly embrace what it means to be the beloved community that Martin Luther King talked about. One of the things that I love the most about the Hope Gateway community, now I'm just going to speak to you from my heart here. One of the things I love the most about the Hope Gateway community that I brag about everywhere I go is the diversity that we see in this room every week when we gather together. People from many different countries. How many countries are represented in the room today? I'm just curious. We have the United States. What other countries do we have here today? Burundi. Democratic Republic of Congo. Angola. Rwanda. Burundi. England. England, thank you. And that's just a representative, right? Also in this room, we have members of the LGBTQ community. We have people of very different ages, life experiences, socioeconomic identities, people in recovery from addiction. We could keep going on all the different ways that we're different from one another, right? And when I brag about this, my friends and colleagues say, how do you do that? Because Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. It's true. 
And we are figuring out how to love one another, not in spite of, because of our many varied life experiences. Is it always neat and clean? No, sometimes it is really messy. This is one of the things we spent some time reflecting on yesterday in our leadership retreat, in fact. How do we live with the tension of people who come from different cultural contexts and understandings about sexuality and gender identity and everything else, everything else, even how to worship? How do we live with that tension? And you know what the answer is? The answer is that our love has to be bigger than our opinions. Right? Our opinions matter a great deal. And our perspectives and our life experiences matter a great deal. But our love has to be bigger than our opinions. That's how we do it. So what I always say when my colleagues and friends say, how do you do that? I say, well, I don't do it. <laughs> like, this is something God does. And it's a miracle. Because love trumps theology, love trumps politics, love trumps life experience, love trumps differences of opinions. That's the only way it works. And will we sometimes bump into each other? Of course we will. Can we get through it? Of course we can. Because the Spirit weaves us together despite the differences. Because of the differences. What we are doing as a Hope Gateway community is so important. And it's something that very few churches in the world have figured out how to do. I really think that's true. Now we're small and we're scrappy, but we're figuring out how to do something that very few churches have figured out how to do. And I love that. I love that about this community. Anybody with me? Yes. yes. Okay. That's why we're here, right? That's why we're all here. So, to sum it up, oppression is oppression and is oppression. All oppression is related. If you have experienced oppression in your own life, it's really important to then try to understand the oppression that someone else might experience that is different from the one you have experienced, but exactly the same in the dynamics. You got it? It's true. There are a hundred ways to be different, and sometimes difference feels threatening. But the welcome of someone who is different from you, who looks different, acts different, loves different, never diminishes your own welcome. We practice the welcome of the other because we have been welcomed, especially by the God whose grace is endless. So I know that this conversation makes some people uncomfortable. I'm good with uncomfortable conversations. I really am. Because uncomfortable conversations, if we do it with integrity and honesty and love, are healthy. Martin Luther King once said, the ultimate measure of a man, now, now listen, Martin Luther King today would say, or a woman, is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge and controversy. There are always going to be times of challenge and controversy, and how we stand and how we love one another really matters 
a great deal. Before I end, I have to say this, and this is an act of confession, and that is I am very clear that white men are the ones who do most of the oppressing. So everything I'm saying today is from the perspective of the oppressor, the one, the one who has done most of the oppressing. That's always been true, okay? And I name that, and I confess that. And that's something I continually want to work on, encourage other white men in the room to join me in that task. Okay, we're going to end with these words from Steve Garnis Holmes. I'm going to invite you just to, as you feel led to, to pop in and read some of the words out loud. Uh, and just if two people start reading, just go for it. Let's share this as our prayer together. position. As long as you tolerate evil. But in every choice you do good or do harm. Let's read this one together. God, give us the faith and courage not merely to lament the harm we do, but to do good. Amen. Now we're going to sing a new song, but I bet it's one that you know.